Just help us to, to be just kind of settled in, and, and we thank you for this time of worship, and Lord, that we can come and now glean from your word, and, and sometimes as we go through the Old Testament, these chapters can just kind of be skipped over and, and not really paid attention to a whole lot, and we want to take heed because we know there's application for us. And so, Lord, open our hearts and our ears to understand, teach us, help us to make application, touch our hearts, uh, bless everyone that is in this building, the junior high class, the high schoolers, the kids in the children's ministry, even the little ones in the nursery that are being ministered to. Pray for that everyone here that's listening to this Bible study in the sanctuary and out in the coffee shop would be blessed tonight as we open up your word and open up our heart to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so after Solomon becomes the king of Israel, after the death of his father David, we know that he's established firmly on the throne to be the king of Israel. We know also during this time of, of Israel's history that they are experiencing their greatest prosperity and peace. And the nation has been blessed because David had defeated all of Israel's enemies around Israel. And so it's a time of great peace. And that's why the Lord said to David, David, you're not going to build the temple. You're a man of war. Your hands are bloodied. It's going to be your son Solomon that's going to build the temple. And so Solomon now being on the throne and, and um, being established, he has set up his administration as we saw in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, he prepares to build the temple. Now in chapters 6 and 7, he's going to build the temple as he will move forward in doing that. And we're going to see how it is that he does that and some of the, the uh, facts and some of the uh, things that made up the temple. is a magnificent building as we're going to see. And so chapter 6 we read, And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, in the month of Ziv which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. And so after Solomon uh, is king for four years, in his fourth year he begins to build the temple. And we know that he would begin to uh, build the temple in what would be 967 BC. As this date is given to us, this is 480 years after the children of Israel had left Egypt. So when you go back to the book of Exodus and you look at chapter 13 of the book of Exodus where they left Egypt in orderly ranks, now it is 480 years later. So historians take this date here in verse 1 of chapter 6 and they say the Exodus took place in 1447 BC. Um, and we know that Solomon here starts the temple in about 967 BC. He finishes in 960 BC, seven years to finish the temple. But I, I want us to, to notice something before we move on. And I want to bring out a very important point here, and it's simply this, that now Solomon begins to build the temple. But you recall that last week as we were going through chapter 5, that in verse 5 of that chapter, when Solomon, he, we read the letter that he wrote to Hiram, the king of Tyre up north, and Hiram is going to provide those cedar logs and cypress logs and float them down the Mediterranean Sea from what we know to be Lebanon today, but up north in that area of Tyre and Sidon, and Sidonians were known for their carpentry and their skills as masons and they would come and they would help Solomon in building the temple but they would float those logs down the Mediterranean Sea to the port city of Joppa 
there on the coast of Israel and then take those logs and take them up to Jerusalem. And as Solomon is writing to Hiram about that, he says in verse 5, And behold, I propose or to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. Or in other words, it might be translated, I purpose to do it. So he proposed to build the house of the Lord. That was something that was on his heart to do, that he knew that his father David wanted to build the house of the Lord, as he mentioned in that letter. But he purposed in his heart. He proposed in his heart to do it. Now chapter 6, he's actually doing it. And, and this is the application for us tonight, because maybe you come tonight and the Lord has purposed in your heart to do something, and doing something for the kingdom of God. And we liken this building, this temple, as, as we are living stones, and we'll talk about here in just a little bit, a little bit more, that God is building a temple today called the church. And you are a part of that building. You are part of the house of God. And so here is Solomon. He purposed in his heart to build this temple. And, and now he is doing it as we see in chapter 6. And as we end chapter 7, it says that he finished the work that God had given him to do. And maybe the Lord has purposed something in your heart. And, and now, is it that you're waiting for the Lord to open those doors for you to do it? Are, are you going to do it? Uh, have you begun to do that work that he's put on your heart? And I think that as the Lord does want us to do things, first of all, he puts it on our hearts, and then he'll open up the doors for you to be able to do those things. And what my prayer is, that as he lays those things on your heart and opens up the doors for you to do ministry, or it may be simple things. Maybe he's purposed in your heart that you go and talk to somebody about the gospel or giving them the word of God. They need some truth, correction in their life. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a neighbor or a co-worker that you have opportunity to talk to and you're just kind of waiting. And, and keep praying and, and allow the Lord to keep that in your heart, what he has purposed in your heart to do. Maybe it's just doing something practical for somebody. Maybe it's doing some ministry here or, or outside these four walls. But Solomon here, he purposed in his heart. Now he's doing what God had put on his heart as the Lord has provided for him to be able to do it. Now that he's on the throne, uh, he has raised up this incredible workforce that we have seen. Of course, 30,000 workers going up to Lebanon to cut those cedar trees and bring them to Jerusalem. We know that there is um, many more, as we saw, 70,000 who carry the burdens. They're going to be bringing the stones in uh, from the quarry. There's 80,000 that are making the stones in the quarry. This is a huge workforce and a huge project that Solomon is undertaking. And there's 3,300 supervisors. And this temple is very, very grand. It's very magnificent. And we know that uh, the second temple would be grand as well when Herod the Great began to expand the second temple that stood during Jesus' time. So here is Solomon. He begins to build this temple. We read in verse 2 that now the house which King Solomon built uh, for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, its width 20, and its height 30 cubits. The festival in front of the sanctuary of the house was 20 cubits long across the width of the house, and the width of the festival uh, extended 10 cubits from the front of the house. And so as he's building this temple, understand that it's not the same dimension as the tabernacle. Now you recall the tabernacle out there in the wilderness that was there. It was a very simple um, you know, tent-like structure. It was portable. They would tear it down whenever they moved camp. And it was made of animal skins, but on the inside of the tabernacle, it was made of boards 
and it was those boards made of Achaia wood. Achaia, uh, you might recall if you saw us give you and show you slides of Israel last year, some of the trees that grow out there in that desert, well, the only tree that grows out there is an Achaia tree, and it's a hardwood uh, tree, and it is one that resists rotting, and so they would use that in making their boards for the tabernacle, and then they overlaid it with gold, and that was on the inside, but the tabernacle had a dirt floor. It was a tent-like structure. They'd take the boards, boards up apart, and then they would fold up the tent and they would move it. This is a permanent structure here, and it has uh, this temple here, Solomon's temple, is going to have the two rooms. It will have the holy place and the most holy place, uh, but it is much, much bigger. It's twice as big as the tabernacle was, and plus the outer courts and all these things that uh, will be a part of the temple. Uh, the temple is going to be 90 feet long, about 30 feet wide, and about 45 feet tall. And here the measurement that is used is a cubit. And of course, they don't know exactly how long a cubit was, but they think it's about 18 inches. And it's about the measurement from the tip of your finger to your elbow. And that's about 18 inches if you take the time to do that. Matter of fact, when I go fishing, and um, I don't have a tape measure with me, uh, sometimes I'll lay that trout right across my arm here. And I know that if it goes from the tip of my finger to here, that's a good-sized trout. It's about 18 inches. And uh, if it goes past that, I get really excited. But, um, <laughs> but about 18 inches, that's about how long it is. And that's a cubit. So you can kind of get an estimate of how big this temple is, being 90 feet long and 30 feet wide and 45 feet tall. And there's four major... Um, structures or parts of the temple and, and there's the temple itself so uh, what Solomon did was is that he built the temple in Jerusalem of course and if you stand on the Mount of Olives which is just east of Jerusalem and we got a picture out there in a coffee shop that is taken from the Mount of Olives and looking at the old city of Jerusalem and what Solomon did is he built the temple on a mountain called Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is just really kind of a hill that goes from the south and rises to the north and peaks on the very north side of Jerusalem or outside of Jerusalem. And what he did was he cut into the mountain to build the temple and he flattened it out and that was the temple platform or the temple proper and he began to build the temple. And on that platform, there was the temple itself. And as I mentioned to you, it had two rooms, just like the tabernacle did. There was, as the priest walked into the temple, that there was the holy place. And you recall that in the wilderness, that when the priest walked into the tabernacle, into the outer, outer sanctuary, or that is the holy place, there was the seven-branch menorah on the left-hand side. There was the shewbread um, table with the 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then in front, there was the altar of incense where the priests would go in and burn incense, and it represented the prayers of the people. And as I mentioned to you, on the outward, the, the tabernacle was not impressive at all. But inwardly, with those boards of Achaia wood overlaid with gold that lined the walls of that tent, and then the only source of light that was in the tabernacle in the holy place was that menorah. And the light reflecting off the, God, uh, the gold would be very beautiful. And then behind the altar of incense, there was a veil. And behind that veil was a smaller room, only about 15 feet by 15 feet, 15 foot square. And there was one furnishing, that was the Ark of the Covenant. It was that wooden box that Moses was told to, to make 
that had the Ten Commandments in it and also a jar of manna and Aaron's rod. And on top of that Ark of the Covenant was a lid made of pure gold called the mercy seat. It was made of cherubims. And the Lord said, that's where I'm going to meet with you, Moses, between the cherubim. And it's a picture of the, the throne of God. Because when you look at the vision of Ezekiel, as he sees the throne chariot of God, there is the cherubim, those angelic beings surrounding it. So they're the guardians of the throne of God, the cherubim. And that's why the mercy seat had that lid made of pure gold on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And then the priest, the high priest, was the only one that was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. So the holy place, the first room, only the priest was allowed to go into the holy place. None of the other people from the 12 tribes of Israel could go into the temple itself. So when you read in the Gospels that Jesus was at the temple and, and the people were at the temple, Jesus is teaching the people at the temple, they were not inside the temple itself. They were in the temple proper and it had big courtyards and it was a magnificent structure. Again, as it was Herod the Great, they came along and expanded the second temple to where it was more magnificent than Solomon's temple. The only difference is Solomon, I think, had a lot more gold that he used in this first temple. The first temple built now in 960 B.C. when it is finished, it will be destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians as Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys Jerusalem. But this temple has got a lot of gold. Even the floors are made of gold here. And so that's the first temple. The second temple, Zerubbabel comes back from the captivity, begins to build the second temple. It's a very simple building. But then Herod the Great comes along and expands it. Again, he, he flattens out that platform to where it's even bigger. And you have the, the courtyard of the Gentiles, the courtyard of the women, where thousands and thousands of people can come to that temple proper and to bring their sacrifices. But the temple building itself was fairly small. It was only made of two rooms, that is the holy place, and then the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, where only the high priest could go behind that veil. Only one man, one day a year, could go behind the veil to the holy of holies where the Shekinah glory of God was, where the tangible presence of God was. And that's why it's so significant that when Jesus was dying on the cross, that it says that the, the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, that it rent in two, ripped in half, and it came down. Because what God was saying in that is that now you can come into my presence because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so it, it's a marvelous truth that we have. So those were the two temples. And then, of course, there hasn't been a temple in Jerusalem for the last 2,000 years. The second temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. And then now there will be a third temple called the Tribulation Temple that we talked about quite extensively in our recent Revelation study. And that temple is going to be built uh, and standing during the Tribulation period. And that's where the Antichrist is going to go in and desecrate that temple. And uh, we talked about that as he will set up an image of himself. And Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, then flee, get out of there, because there will be great tribulation as such as the world has never seen or ever will see. So the tribulation temple will stand for a short time. And then when Jesus Christ comes back to establish his kingdom, then that temple will be destroyed. And then there's a fourth temple that will stand. And we're talking about a literal temple building in Jerusalem that will be standing during the millennium reign of Jesus Christ spoken of in Ezekiel chapters 40 through chapter 48, I believe. And so you can read about that. So here is the first temple. 
temple building itself. Then there is the entrance hall, the festival, and, and that is on the east side. It is about 30 feet wide and 15 feet deep, and it would be facing the Mount of Olives. So the priest, if he stood at the door of the temple, it would be looking eat east towards that entrance hall and the festival, and then he would be looking towards the Mount of Olives as he continued to look eastward. Then there was a three-story side chamber which surrounded the temple to the north and south and west sides that we're going to read about, and then a large courtyard surrounding the whole structure. Uh, we continue reading in verse 4, And he made for the house windows with beveled frames. Against the wall of the temple he built chambers all around, against the walls of the temple, all around the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary. Thus he made side chambers all around it. So the Holy of Holies was called the inner sanctuary, also called the most holy place. So those are our interchangeable terms. The, the, the outer sanctuary, or the holy place, is the same thing as well, so so you don't get confused. So when it talks about here the inner sanctuary, he's talking about the holy of holies. In verse six, the lowest chamber was five cubits wide, and the middle was six cubits wide. The third was seven cubits wide, and he made narrow ledges around the outside of the temple so that the support beams would not be fastened into the walls of the temple. And so the tabernacle we know didn't have any windows, but here we see that Solomon he puts windows into the temple here and he also makes some additional side chambers and buildings that were made as well so this is a magnificent structure not just the temple itself but side chambers and three-story buildings and courtyards that are being made and verse 7 in the temple when it was being built was built with stones finished at the quarry so that no hammer hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built so what they did was, as I told you, they built the temple on Mount Moriah, right? And as you stood there and you look at where the temple was being built on that mountain, and you continued north, Mount Moriah would peak just north of Jerusalem. And what Solomon did is he went to the top of that mountain and he began to quarry for making stones that would be placed down at the temple. And the quarry there with 80,000 workers up there working at that quarry, they were making these huge stones and these quality stones, as we read about last week. And what they did was, as they mined those stones, all the hammering, all the chiseling was done at the mines up there at the top of Mount Moriah. And then they would bring those stones down the mountain and they would put them in place and they would fit perfectly. No mortar between the stones hairline fracture, you can't even put a piece of paper or, or a credit card or anything in between the cracks. That's how perfectly they would fit together in building this temple. It's the same thing as you look at the Herodian stones of the second temple that are 2,000 years old. Absolutely amazing. But they did all the hammering and the chiseling of those stones up at the quarry, and then they brought it down. Now, those of you who were here last week, I just, again, I want to remind you that actually there is a fifth temple that is spoken of in the scriptures, and that is the church. Because Peter, in his epistle, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, says that you guys are living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And also, we discuss how Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, talks about that God himself is building a house whose house you are. In other words, you are a part of this temple that God is building. It's a living temple. 
is made up of living stones. That is you and I. And I think that, that there's an important principle here in truth that we can look at. All the hammering and the chiseling is done up there at the quarry, and then all of it was brought down and it fit together. And you see the Lord is putting us living stones together so to make this thing a beauty and glory because the temple in Jerusalem was to bring glory and honor to the Lord. It was to be a house of prayer. It was to be a place where the people could come and give sacrifice and worship the Lord. And you see, the church is something, as us living stones come together, it is something that comes together. Is He is the chief cornerstone, Jesus is, as we learn from the book of Ephesians. He is our foundation, putting us living stones together to bring glory and honor to the Lord, that we might be a living sacrifice unto the Lord, as Peter writes. A living sacrifice, pleasing, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, that we might bring glory to him, we might uh, be a light to a lost world. And you see the temple, we're going to see that Solomon, when he dedicates this temple, he's going to talk about the Gentile, the foreigner who comes to this house of prayer and comes and seeks God here. It was to be a light to the other nations. And you see the church is to be a light to a lost world, isn't it? I think that we need to be careful and, and um, we can you know, minister to those particularly who come along and perhaps uh, hopefully no one feels that way here, but, but maybe at one time you did or, or maybe you know somebody who says, oh, the church, the church, church is bogus. I don't believe in organized religion. I don't go to church. I don't need to go to church and I can just sit at home or I can go up in the mountains and just kind of you know, meditate on God, the church can't save you, and you can go up in the mountains, and you can spend time with the Lord, there's no doubt. But you see, Jesus loves the church. He's the cornerstone of the church. He's the foundation of the church. He stands in the midst of the church. Remember Revelation chapter 1? He stands in the midst of the seven lampstands, which were the seven churches of Proconsular Asia. He's into the church, and he has set up the church for us as living stones that come together that we might bring glory and honor to the Lord, that we might be a witness to a lost and dying world, that we can be living sacrifices uh, as we live for him and as we serve the Lord. And you see, here's the thing. They were doing all the hammering and the chiseling up in the quarries and then bringing it down to make the temple. As the Lord desires to put us together, he's going to do some hammering and some chiseling on you, okay? And some days and sometimes it feels like you're in the quarry and it feels like it's the pits. And it feels like it's hard, doesn't it? And the Lord will put you with people that maybe that, you know, you start to rub each other the wrong way. Or maybe, you know, it seems like you don't quite fit together. And I, I know for me that the Lord has come along and say, okay, Jeff, I got to do a little bit of more chiseling on you, okay? I, I got to... Uh, take the chip off your shoulder or I need to, you know, begin to hammer away at some things in your life and in your heart that isn't right. Because when it's all said and done, when the Lord takes the church to be with him, we're all going to fit together perfectly. Folks, think about this. You know, what God is doing here at Calvary Chapel and as the church grows and Sunday morning, we're just seeing more and more people and people are being blessed. Look at all the people. Look at us that he brings together to be a family to be a part of this spiritual and, and holy temple, the living stones. I mean, we all have different backgrounds. We all have different experiences. Um, you know, we're all different. 
and we would not hang out with each other if it wasn't for the church or if it wasn't for Jesus. Because that's one thing that we got in common is that we love Jesus. And he has brought us together into this glorious thing called the church, a living, you know, temple. And, and for us to fit where we're supposed to be, he's going to do a little bit of hammering and chiseling, and it's going to be uncomfortable at times. But don't bail on the church is what I'm trying to say. Don't bail on the church. The Lord has used the church to be a blessing to his people. And as Hebrews tells us, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the matter of son some, especially as you see the day approaching. What day? The return of the Lord. And what my prayer is, is that this place, if this is your home church, that this is a place, it's a priority to be here and be with the people. And, and, and I know it is for you, because you could be doing a whole lot of other things on a Wednesday night in summertime. But you've chosen to be here to study God's word. And, and you've chosen to be here to be a part of the body of Christ, that we would just continue to just allow the Lord to do that work that he wants to do in our lives. And sometimes, you know, a little bit of hammering and chiseling on us to bring us to that place where he wants us to be because he's doing a marvelous, marvelous work. He's putting a, a, a holy temple together, the body of Christ. And that's what was happening here. So the stones would fit together perfectly as they were being quarried there on, on Solomon's, um, you know, uh, quarries that you can go and see today. It's interesting that he should stand on the Mount of Olives that um, there are some tour guides that will say, well, where Jesus was crucified was to the west of where the temple was. I believe it was on the north, and I'll tell you why. Because as you go up Mount Moriah, two reasons. Solomon, as he would make that quarry, it made a canyon between the top of Mount Moriah and where the old city wall of Jerusalem was. And on the south-facing slope, there's a figure of a skull that was left. And as Jesus went to that place of execution, they called it what? Golgotha, the place of the skull called Calvary. Also, I believe that Leviticus chapter 1 tells us that as Jesus, of course, he fulfilled all the sacrifices. Leviticus chapter 1 talks about the burnt offering and the animal of that sacrifice was to be sacrificed. It was to be killed on the north side of the altar. That's the second reason. So Mount Moriah, as you go north of where the temple was, there on top, Solomon's temple, or Solomon's quarries, and there was that face left in, in the scars of the rocks that they did the quarrying that has the face of a skull. Uh, I believe that Leviticus chapter 1 says and represents that Jesus died on the north side, but here's the other thing. Remember Genesis chapter 22 that it was Abraham told to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the place, go to the mountain that I will show you to sacrifice your son. So Abraham made a three-day journey, and you know the story how Abraham told his servants, stay here, and me and the lad are going to go up and sacrifice, and we will come back to you. And here is Isaac carrying the wood of the sacrifice on his back, walking up that hill, and here is Abraham with uh, you know, the knife of God's judgment in one hand, he's got the torch in the other. And we know that as it was Abraham got to the top of the hill, that he was about ready to sacrifice Isaac. And the angel came and said, Abraham, don't. God was testing Abraham. Oh, Abraham, don't. Now I know that you love God. And what did God 
or Abraham called that place? He called that place, the top of that mountain, the Lord will provide. Where did the Lord provide for you and for me? On top of Mount Moriah, that mountain called Calvary, where Jesus Christ, 2,000 years later, took the wood of the sacrifice on his back and walked up that exact, exact same hill through the narrow streets of Jerusalem and went to that place of execution, Golgotha, the place of the skull. And that's where he provided for you and for me for forgiveness of sin because Jesus Christ died for you and for me. He died for us sinners. Then now we have forgiveness of sin as we come to him freely and surrender our lives to him. We have the hope of heaven and right relationship with the Father that comes through Jesus Christ alone. The Lord will provide, Abraham said, and the Lord did provide 2,000 years later as his son went up that hill with the wood of the sacrifice on his back, but that time there was no stopping the sacrifice. Jesus became a sacrifice for you and for me. So that's what all of this is, is taking place there in Jerusalem. Let's continue reading in verse 8, that the doorway of the middle story was on the right side of the temple, and they went up by the stairs by the middle story, and from the middle to the third. So he built the temple and finished it, and he paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar. And he built side chambers, again, against the entire temple, each five cubits high, and they were, were attached to the temple with cedar beams. So it, it would take seven years to complete all of this. And then verse 11, then the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, concerning this temple, which you are building, if you walk in my statues, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the temple and he finished it. And so the building of the temple as this is going on, the Lord appears to Solomon and reminds him of the covenant that he made with his people. And the Lord says, walk in my ways and keep my word and keep my statutes and my commandments. And, and I think here is a glorious time going on in the nation of Israel, this project going on and thousands of workers that are mining the stones and thousands on the temple platform that is putting the stones together and thousand more is bringing over the cedar trees and masons and carpenters and all this work that is going on and it's a glorious glorious time and here the Lord comes to Solomon and says that Solomon remember to keep my word keep my commandments keep my statutes and I think there's a very important principle in this because the Lord was more concerned than just a building. This building, the Lord's going to honor. And, and the temple, we're going to see that God's glory is revealed here. But it was more than just a building. And I think that what the Lord is reminding Solomon and the people of Israel at this time is don't forget me in this building of the temple. And you see in the building of this temple today, the living temple, the living stones being put together, what can happen is, is that we can get so busy with things. I mean, this is a busy time. I can imagine just all the work that is being done and the focus and, and you know, all the, the things that has to take place to finish this temple. And it was a priority for Solomon, but the Lord's come along and saying, listen, I'm more interested in your heart than the building itself. Yes, the building is going to be used to glorify me. I'm going to honor it. Is going to be a place of worship and sacrifice for my people. But don't forget me personally. And you see, we can get so busy as a church, we can get so busy serving the Lord that we forget about Him personally, our devotion to Him. 
You see, Jesus wrote that letter to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, remember? And to the, to the church of Ephesus, he says, I know your works, I know your labors, I know your patience, I know that you stand on truth. You, you point out those who are false. This was a working church, the church of Ephesus. I mean, their works, their labor, they were standing on truth. I think it was a church that was very dynamic. They had something going on every night of the week. They had all kinds of things taking place. People were busy. But Jesus, in commending them for doing the work of the Lord, he says, one thing that I do hold against you, and that is you've left your first love. And I think that's kind of what the message and the warning is given to Solomon. Solomon, in all this work, don't forget about me and your love for me and the nation and their devotion to me. And you see, we need to make sure that as we serve the Lord and as we go through life, we can get busy with life or we're busy in the church, we get busy with ministry. I know that I get very busy. Maybe this is just something for me tonight. Because there are times where I have to be in two places at the same time. That's how busy it can get for me. But the Lord reminds me, don't forget about me personally and your devotion to me because I'm more interested in you and spending time with you and your devotion to me than your busyness, Jeff. And it's the same with all of us. So Solomon, make sure that you are, you know, keeping my word and walking in my ways and don't forget the covenant. And as, of course, he gave them the covenant, he would say, oh, that you would love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and he wants our devotion more than anything and we continue in verse 15 and he built the inside walls of the temple with cedar boards from the floor of the temple to the ceiling he paneled the inside with wood and he covered the floor of the temple with planks of cypress and verse 16 then he built the 20 cubit room at the rear of the temple from the floor to ceiling with cedar boards he built the inside as the inner sanctuary as the most holy place so the inner sanctuary the the most holy place, the holy of holies. That's what it's being talked about. And in front of the temple sanctuary was 40 cubits long. And the inside of the temple was cedar carved with ornamental buds and open flowers, all with cedar, and there was no stone to be seen. And he prepared the inner sanctuary uh, inside the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. So the inner sanctuary or the most holy place or the holy of holies, the Ark of the Covenant is going to be there. And we will see that Solomon's going to have it placed there taken by the Levites, be put into the Holy of Holies. And verse 20, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. He overlaid with pure gold and overlaid the altar of cedar. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold. He stretched gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. The whole temple he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the temple. Also he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was in by the inner sanctuary. And inside the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high, so about uh, 15 feet high. And one wing of the cherub was five cubits, and the other wing of the cherub was five cubits, 10 cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. And the other cherub was 10 cubits. Both cherubim were the same size and shape. And the height of one cherub was 10 cubits, and so was the other cherub. And then he set the cherubim inside the inner room, and they stretched out the wings of the cherubim so that the wing of one touched one wall, and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room, and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. So a lot of gold makes up this temple. 
I mean, the inner sanctuary of the Holy of Holies was lined with gold, and there was gold chains, and these huge 15 feet high uh, cherubim, and, and their wings stretched all across the room. They were all overlaid with gold. And what is interesting, when we continue through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, what we're going to see is that throughout this 400-year history of this temple, that the kings of Judah, once in a while, they would take gold from the temple. Or there'd be those that would come in and, and take some of the gold when they got defeated by their enemies. Or what happened was some of the kings also, what they did is what we'll read like with Ahaz and with Hezekiah. What they did is they took some of that gold out of the temple. It says they took it from the doorposts and uh, from the temple and they would pay off uh, uh, the, um, you know, the king of another nation that was threatening them. Ahaz did that with Assyria. Assyria would become a powerhouse just right after this. They were ones that were the most powerful empire on the face of the earth right after the death of Solomon as Israel declines in power, the nation splits. Assyria begins to flex its muscles. And so Ahaz is, is about ready to be attacked by by Syria and Israel, and so what does he do, this wicked king? He, he takes some of the gold out of the temple to pay off, to appease the king of Assyria, to, to help him out. We know that Hezekiah, when he's feeling threatened by Shennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, he tried to pay off Shennacherib and say, hey, I'll give you some of the gold from the temple. You read this all the time. There was a lot of gold here. And so they tried to pay off the enemy, to keep the enemy from attacking them. Listen, never make a peace treaty with the enemy. Never make a peace treaty with the enemy because he's a liar. And what does Shennacherib did? He came down and he attacked the nation anyway. And this time, as we see in Hezekiah's case, Hezekiah went to the Lord and the Lord brought victory. And we'll talk about that later to Hezekiah and to Judah and to Jerusalem. So here was a lot of gold that was in the temple, and a lot of that gold would be ripped out to pay off the enemies rather than the people just trusting in the Lord. But we continue in verse 29. Then he carved all the walls of the temple all around, both the inner and outer sanctuaries with carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. And the floor of the temple he overlaid with gold. So even the floor is made of gold, both the inner and outer sanctuaries. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood and lentil, and the doorposts were one-fifth of the wall. And the two doors were the olive woods, and he carved on them figures of cherub, uh, palm trees, and open flowers, and overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherub cherubim and on the palm trees. So for the door of the sanctuary, he also made doorposts of olive wood, one-fourth of the wall, and the two doors were of cypress wood, two panels comprised of one folding door, and two panels uh, comprised of another folding door. And he carved cherubim and palm trees and opened flowers on them, and overlaid them with gold, applied evenly and carved work. And he built the inner court with three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams. And in the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the mount of Ziv, and in the eleventh year, in the uh, month of Bol, which the eighth month, the house was finished in all its details according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. So seven years to build this temple. Then chapter seven. But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so he finished all his house. And he also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, one, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. 
and four rows of cedar, cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars. So he builds this, this, this palace, Solomon does, and it's huge. And it's interesting that Solomon took seven years to build the temple, 13 years to build his own house. Now, there are some commentators that come along and they say that Solomon didn't have his priorities right. It's kind of like after the, the Babylonian captivity, after this temple was destroyed, by the Babylonians, and they, the house of Judah went into captivity. When that was over, Zerubbabel comes back, and he comes back with about 50,000 captives, and they begin to rebuild the second temple. They laid the foundation of that temple, and then the work stopped. And the work stopped for about 12 years. Haggai, in the Old Testament, he comes along, he begins to rebuke the people. He says that you guys have stopped the work of the temple because you're more concerned about your panel homes. That is, they were going in and just focusing on their own homes and, and making big homes and vacation homes, and that's what you're concerned about, and the work of the Lord has stopped. So Haggai is saying, get back to doing the work of the Lord. So some say that this is kind of what was happening with Solomon. He took seven years to build a temple, 13 years to build his own palace, and he has his priorities mixed up. He's more concerned about building his paneled home, just like it was in the time of the return of the captivity. I don't think that is the case here at all. I think that Solomon made the building of the temple a priority, and it was a much more difficult and larger project by far than building this palace. And I think that he took seven years because he had all the workers and all the resources building the temple. His palace, which was big and which is grand that we're going to read about, that was kind of a side project, and it took 13 years. You know how it is. When you're at home, you've got a major project that you're doing, maybe redoing the kitchen or a bathroom, and, and all the other projects kind of go on the side, and they have to wait and do it later. That's what's happening here. Solomon's uh, palace is just going to have to wait, and it's going to take a while, and he only has a few workers on it. But everybody else is over there at the temple working at the temple. And, and by the way, let's do make sure that our priorities are right. Because, you know, we have homes, and we have things that we do, we have gardens, we have homes to work on, whatever it is. But let's make sure that the Lord is the priority in our lives, in every area of our lives. And you see, the problem was what Haggai was saying is the Lord isn't the priority with you guys. It's the other things that can get in the way, and that can happen so easily, can it? We get kind of pulled away from making the Lord the priority just in the busyness of life or the things that need to be done and the projects and the hobbies and everything else. And I just want to remind for all of us that let's keep the priorities right, and that is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto you. You know, one of the things that I have found that when I really do keep the Lord the priority in every area of my life, those other areas I enjoy a whole lot more. And I get a whole lot more done when I keep Him the priority. And when I keep Him the focus, keep your eyes on the things above, not on the things of this world. Keep things in proper perspective. And, and I think Solomon's doing that here. In verse 2, he also built, the, as we read, the house of the forest of Lebanon. The reason is because 
Just the splinter of Solomon's palace, so much cedar wood from Lebanon was used to build Solomon's palace that they called it the house of the forest of Lebanon. We read in verse 3 that it was paneled with cedar above the beams that were on 45 pillars, 15 to a row. So there was all these pillars, and it looked like a forest. It resembled a, a, a forest. And we continue in verse 4. There was windows with beveled frames in three rows, and windows was opposite window in three tiers and all the doorways and doorposts and rectangular frames and window was opposite window and three tiers and he also made the hollow pillars its length was 50 cubits and its width 30 cubits in front of them was a, a portico with pillars and a canopy was in front of them and he made a hall of the throne a hall of judgment where uh, he might judge and it was paneled with cedar and from floor to ceiling and a house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall and uh, like workmanship, Solomon also made a house uh, like uh, this house for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken his wife. And these were the costly stones cut to size, trimmed with saws inside and out from the foundation to the eaves and also on the outside to the great court. And the foundation was of costly stones, large stones, some 10 cubits and some 8 cubits. And above were costly stones hewn to size in cedar wood. And the great court was enclosed with three rows of hewn stones and a row of cedar beams. So were the inner court of the house of the Lord and the festival of the temple. So he's getting back to starting to speak about the temple once again. And some of the architectural features used in Solomon's palace is, is also used in the house of the Lord. In verse 13, now King Solomon sent and brought Huram, it might be Haram, also in your translation. This is not the King Haram that we read about in chapter 5. This is another individual because he's the son of a widow, verse 14 tells us, of the tribe of Natali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill and working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all of his works. And so the bronze pillars of the temple, verse 15, and he cast two pillars of bronze, each one 18 cubits high and a line of 20 cubits measured the circumference of each and he made two capitals of cast bronze that set on top of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits and the height of another capital was five cubits. And it talks about, you know, the, this, this lattice network as you continue reading. But I want to close tonight with verse 21 and verse 22. As we read, then he set up the pillars by the festival of the temple, that is the entrance. And he set up the pillars on the right and called its name Jacob, and he set up a pillar on the left and called his name Boaz. And the tops of the pillars were in the shape of lilies, so the work of the pillars was finished. And so what we see here is that he cast two pillars of, of, of bronze. They're 27 feet high, 18 feet around, and they're right at the entrance of the temple. One is called Jacob, which means he shall establish. The left one was called, as you came in, on the left-hand side was Boaz, which means in him is strength. And it was just right outside of the holy place as the priest would come in, and it reminded the priest, it reminded the people of God that God had established the nation by his strength, that they would continue as a nation. Jacob speaks of stability. Boaz speaks of strength. And I want to close with this. God is the one that is our pillar, isn't he? He is the one that gives us strength, and he's the one that establishes us. He's the one that brings stability. He's the one that brings establishment and strength to us. You see, it's in the Lord, and that's what he wants to do in your life, and that's what he wants to do in my life. He wants to bring true stability where we're just standing firm in Him. And He wants to bring 
establishment, that is strength, firmness to be established in him, to bring strength to us in our lives. And it comes that as we come into that place of just having devotion to him, trusting in him, and resting in his love. He wants us to do that work of Jacob, stability, Boaz, strength in our lives. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for, as we look at this, we can make application, and we know that you desire to bring stability you have by saving us. We are people that we can stand firm in the promises of God, and we can be established and have strength in our lives, your strength, Lord, because we believe in you and we, we know you, Lord. And, Lord, I, I just praise you for the work that you're doing in our lives. And, Father, I thank you for this temple that you are putting together that continues to grow, us living stones coming together. I thank you for the people that are here. I thank you for the love that is here. I thank you for the work that you're doing through us. And, Lord, I know that there's chiseling and hammering that needs to be done on every single one of us. But may we just allow you to do that work chiseling away on the pride and self-reliance and the attitudes that aren't right, that we can come together and really bring glory and honor to you and be a light to this community. And if I encourage one another as we serve, to build each other up and to be a testimony of your truthfulness and goodness and faithfulness. Father, I do pray that if there is anyone here tonight that hasn't really been established in you that they would know that that you desire for them to come to you, Lord. To that place of provision, just as Abraham said 4,000 years ago, that God will provide. This is that place, the top of Mount Moriah. And that's where Jesus went and died on the cross. And he's provided for us forgiveness of sin and salvation and to come into right relationship with you that comes only through Jesus Christ. So Father, if there is anyone here in the sanctuary or here tonight out in the coffee shop that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, we want to give you opportunity to do so right where you're sitting to understand that we all are separated from God because of our sin and we've all sinned. But Jesus Christ is our mediator. He came and he died for your sins as he hung on Calvary's cross. And as he hung on the cross, he would cry out, it is finished. In other words, I died for your sins. I provided, made provision for forgiveness. I've I've done the work. And all you have to do is open your heart to Jesus. Believe in your heart, confessing that you're a sinner. And believe Jesus Christ died for your sins and that he was put into a grave and rose again. We want to give you opportunity. If that means anything to anyone here tonight, don't leave here if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because he is the only one that can bring you salvation, a heart surrendered to him. You pray, Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God who died for me on Calvary's cross. Forgive me of my sins, for I am a sinner. And I turn to you now, and I surrender my heart. Be my personal Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving me. I believe that you're alive.